Good morning. Uh, I hope you've all enjoyed doing your homework. Um, and I do hope the content of my last talk helped clarify the argument that Paul is making through uh, Romans uh, chapters uh, 9 to 11, and that uh, and some people were saying how things are, are actually becoming clearer as a consequence. So I pray that that will be true for you all. Now, I hope you noticed how extensively Paul was quoting from the Old Testament. You see, uh, I tried to count them. Um, I didn't quite manage to get to the end, but there were at least 25 citations or direct references to the Old Testament. And I say at least 25 because it was at that point I began to lose count, thinking, have I missed one or have I missed some? And I didn't, hadn't, didn't even get to the end of chapter 11. You probably noticed that Isaiah featured prominently, but he was not the only prophet Paul drew upon. Uh, There was Hosea, Joel, Jeremiah, uh, and that's not all of them. And you probably noticed that he used Genesis and Exodus quite a lot, but there were also references to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Kings. Um, Now, I'm giving you a complete list. But I do want to point out that although we are studying Romans, that doesn't mean that we're not studying the Old Testament. You see, in fact, if anyone asks you if you study the Old Testament gateway, we'll tell them, yes, we're studying Romans, Hebrews and James. (laughs) Now, this time last week when I gave uh, those um, references out, I, I had one thing in my mind, but when I actually came to write what I'm going to bring to you today, it kind of turned out rather differently. Um, Now, I'm still emphasising the importance of actually keeping the whole three chapters together, but I do actually want us to begin by reading uh, uh, chapter 9 up to to the end of verse 24. So if we can begin by reading that um, before looking at... uh, at, um, everything that uh, I've actually written. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish I could, for I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, But when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, 
he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay, from the same lump to take one vessel for honour and another for dishonour? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now I want to begin by reminding you of the importance of taking these three chapters together as a whole, because they represent one argument. If we take any one of these chapters apart from the others, we will draw the wrong conclusions, as I want to illustrate a bit later. One of my concluding points last time was to ask you, when you reread it, to recognise how chapters 9 to 11 relate to, to each other. How issues raised and questions asked in chapter 9 are given supporting evidence in chapter 10 before being fully answered in chapter 11. So I want to begin by illustrating this point with a few examples. Now, although a relatively minor point, but just the fact that Paul refers so extensively from the Old Testament, and these references are fairly evenly spread across all three chapters, would indicate that he's making one argument. However, we need to make the case far more strongly than that. In leading up to the beginning of making his case, Paul stated that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And Paul then anticipates an objection. What about the Jews? Doesn't their lack of numbers in the church and their reluctance to receive the gospel mean that God has rejected them and replaced them with the Gentile church as his people? And if so, that would suggest that the word of God could not only, but has indeed failed. So in chapters 9 to 11, Paul is defending the validity, reliability and dependability of the word of God. And he begins in, nine, uh, in chapter 9 verse 5 by stating that it's not as though the word of God has had no effect or in some versions it's not as though the word of God has failed. And he goes on throughout the whole argument to demonstrate that not only has the word of God not failed but also that it cannot fail. The gifts in chapter 11 he concludes that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And that when you understand what is going on from God's perspective, when you understand things as they truly are, you will be utterly amazed at the wisdom of God and left declaring along with Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? or who has become his counsellor. Secondly, it is clear that the subject of the discussion throughout all three chapters is God's purposes and plans for Israel. And he begins by discussing how his Israel was chosen in the past, in chapter 9. And he goes on to discuss their current circumstances in the present, in the latter part of chapter 9, through chapter 10, and into the first part of chapter 11, and concludes by revealing something of God's purposes and plans for their future in the remainder of chapter 11. So this, again, clearly demonstrates he is making one argument. The next thing we need to notice is that these chapters are about the choices God makes. Quoting the book of Exodus, Paul states that God will have mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now, chapter 11 is still discussing this issue. Chapter 11 has a lot to say about God's mercy. And it also reveals part, not all, but part of the reason for the current uh, uh, underrepresentation of Jews in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the present, that God has hardened them. Now, there is something in all of us that wants to object to the fact that God makes choices. 
There's something in us that wants God to be what we want him to be and for him to do what we want him to do, rather than simply believing and understanding what he has made known concerning himself in, through his word. And when confronted with God's choice, choices, there is an attitude within us that wants to object, saying, if God has mercy upon and hardens whoever he likes, then why am I accountable to him? The point Paul is making in the middle of chapter 9 is that we need to get rid of this fleshly attitude of talking back to God if we are to understand his revelation to us. So Paul has to deal with attitudes as well as arguments in this section. And as I pointed out last time, Paul is dealing with attitudes in chapter 11 still when he rebukes his Gentile readers for their arrogance, haughtiness and conceitedness towards unbelieving Jews. And as I also pointed out last time, people tend to become far too attached to their pre-existing beliefs. People become far too committed to their various isms. And there are only two isms a Christian should be fully committed to, and they are baptism and evangelism. So I hope you're beginning to see how chapters 9 to 11 fit together and the importance of not drawing conclusions from any one of them in isolation from the others. Now I say this because it's because people have done just that, that beliefs and doctrines that run counter to scripture have been the consequence. Take the statement in verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and, whomever, and who he wills he hardens. Now let me ask you a question. Has God made known in the scripture who he has mercy upon and who he hardens? See, I want to spend much of today demonstrating clearly from the scriptures that he has and that we can confirm this by taking chapters 9 to 11 as a whole. But there are some that do not take that statement as part of the whole argument that Paul is making. Instead, they link it to the choice of Jacob over Esau in 9 verses 11 to 13, and also link it to 8 verses 29 and 30, in which Paul talks about those he predestined, and come up with an unbiblical doctrine that before the beginning of time, before anyone has done anything good or evil, God predetermined some individuals for salvation and some for destruction. Now, such a view is contradictory to what is clearly taught in Scripture. As I stated last time, the offer of the gospel is fully, freely and honestly made to all of mankind, for God desires that all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, let's turn our attention to what the passage actually says in more detail. And I want to begin by looking at uh, Paul's answer to the charge that the word of God has failed. He states in verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all of Israel who are Israel. Well, what does that mean? What does he mean, not all Israel who are of Israel? I believe that he is saying that not all physical descendants of Israel a human view of Israel, are Israel from God's perspective. So who are Israel from God's perspective? Before dealing with that directly, we need to do some background study first. In this passage, Paul is confronting us with the fact that God makes choices. So we need to ask, what was Israel chosen for? And I want to give you three answers. I'm sure people can add to these, but I just want to give you three. Firstly, it was to be through Israel that God would make himself known to the world. Secondly, it was through Israel that God chose to reveal his plans and purposes with respect to salvation. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. And the last thing I want to say is the point that Paul made in verse 5, that Christ, the fulfilment of God's promise to send a redeemer who would die to make the perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world, would be born, according to the flesh, a physical descendant of Israel. And Paul emphatically adds that Christ is the eternally blessed God 
And if that's not a clear statement as to the deity of Jesus, then I don't know what is. So God chose Israel for a purpose, the purpose of bringing to the world God's revelation concerning himself and his plans and purposes for salvation. And and it's in this way that the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he repeated the promise to all three, that through through you all families of the earth would be blessed, that is how it's been fulfilled. But why did he choose Israel for that purpose? Why Jacob, not Esau? Well, Paul clearly states it had nothing to do with them. The choice was made before they were born, before either had done anything good or bad. It was entirely God's choice. He had every right to choose and owes no one an explanation for that choice. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now we tend to get the wrong idea about these two words, seeing them as emotions we feel rather than the intended meaning, which is about actions we take. See, when Jesus said, you are not worthy to be my disciple if you do not hate your father and mother, he meant that he, Jesus, is to take precedence. If he wants you to do one thing and your parents another, then the worthy disciple will always do what Jesus wants in preference. Now, the purpose for which God chose Israel is clear. He chose them to bring revelation concerning his purpose, purposes and plan of salvation to the world. So who then are Israel from God's perspective if he does not mean all physical descendants of Jacob? Well, just as God promised nations would be blessed through Abraham's descendants, he didn't mean all of them. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And just as he did not mean all Isaac's descendants, he chose Jacob, not Esau, the same is true for the descendants of Jacob or Israel as he became known later in life. Not all the physical descendants of Israel were chosen for the purpose of bringing the blessing of God's revelation to the nations. So who are Israel from God's perspective? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 8. It would be the children of the promise, not children of the flesh. That is, the blessing would come through those who demonstrated their belief in the promise that was being made through them by their active cooperation with it. And this was effectively the same answer that Paul has already given twice earlier in the letter. In chapter 2, he stated that a Jew from God's perspective is one who has has a circumcised heart. And in chapter 4, when he makes clear that the sons of Abraham, from God's perspective, are those who have the faith of Abraham. So God's word has not failed. The charge has been answered. The case has been made. God has indeed blessed the nations through believing Israel. It's through believing Israel that we have this book. Because apart from Luke, every human author of this book is a believing Jew. God has brought about the revelation of his person, purposes and plans through those descendants of Jacob who have actively cooperated with him. Those who have lived by faith. Faith in the promise that he made in the Garden of Eden to destroy Satan through a a redeemer who would be the seed of the woman. It is through those who have the faith of Abraham, who put his faith, who put his faith in the one true God who justifies the ungodly and who came to understand that God would provide the perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind. And we know Abraham believed in Jesus. He looked forward to Jesus' day as Jesus himself taught in John chapter 8. Now, just to clarify exactly what I am saying, I need to make a couple of points. Firstly, we need to make clear the distinction between being chosen for service and salvation. Let's take John the Baptist, for example. Clearly, he was a prophet. But as a prophet, he was also himself the subject and fulfilment of prophecy. He was therefore chosen for service to announce and make people ready for the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. The Gospel accounts make clear that he was faithful to his calling, and Jesus acknowledged that fact. For I say to you, 
those, uh, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. However, is that what saved him? Clearly not, since Jesus went on to say, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So on what basis was John saved? Well, Paul makes clear in chapter 10 what constitutes saving faith. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead was the proof that the perfect sacrifice for the sin of mankind had been made and accepted. And this is what John believed and confessed. On the occasion when Jesus came to John for baptism, John declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God meaning the perfect sacrifice. And why did he say it? Because he believed it in his heart. The second point I want us to consider is this. Does the fact that God chose to fulfil his promise through Isaac mean that Ishmael, or indeed any of his six other brothers, born to Abraham's wife Keturah after Sarah died, does that mean that they could not be saved? No. Since Abraham was accounted righteous by believing God's promise, then surely it would have been possible for them too. And if you think about it, wouldn't Abraham have done everything possible to encourage not only them, but indeed the whole of his household, to believe in what God had promised to do? Now, admittedly, the Old Testament does not contain an extensive record of saving faith among the Gentiles, but there were some. Rahab and Ruth being prominent examples. And even though the Gentiles were not of the chosen line through whom God would fulfil his promise, it did not prevent them from having the same saving faith as Abraham. Now, Rahab and Ruth were actually incorporated into that line, uh, as you know, but uh, not, not, every Jew who, uh, not every Gentile who came to believe in the promise uh, that God made to Abraham. Now, so just as being a physical descendant of Israel did not guarantee that you would automatically have saving faith, neither did it mean that you could not have saving faith if you were not. Now, before moving on, I want to make uh, one final point on this, as it links directly into, and I believe is the reason, why Paul introduces Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus into the next stage of his argument. You see, God's word has not failed. God has fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham. Through him, all families of the earth have been blessed through believing Israel. But in chapter 11, Paul makes an interesting point that is often overlooked. For God has also fulfilled that promise through unbelieving Israel too. Verse 11, uh, 11 verse 11. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Do you see the sovereignty of God in all of this? He has fulfilled the promise to bless the nations through those who believed and cooperated, and he's done it through those who did not. Now, the choice of whether they cooperated was theirs. They were given every opportunity they needed. And it's also true to say that God would have wanted all of them to cooperate, for God wants all men to be saved. He wants our cooperation too, so that we share in its blessing. He wants us to know by experience the blessing that comes through faith. However, the fulfilment of his plans did not depend on their cooperation, nor does it depend on ours. But if we are to share in its blessing, our cooperation is required. And it is this point I believe Paul goes on to make when he invites his readers to consider Pharaoh. Now let's read, let us read carefully what Paul writes in verse 17. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, does it say that God raised Pharaoh up in order to harden him? It says, he raised him up, that I may show my power in you, and my name be declared in all the earth. In other words, that God's name would be glorified. Now, Paul was quoting what God said to Pharaoh through his prophet Moses in Exodus 9. 
So let's turn to Exodus 9 now and just look at uh, verses, uh, that verse and the verse that immediately follows. We're looking at verses uh, 16 and 17 in Exodus 9. So let me just read verses 16 and 17 in chapter 9. Let me just read them to you. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. Now God said to Pharaoh, I have raised you up that my name may be glorified in all the earth and yet you are not willing to cooperate with me. In fact, you are actively opposed to me and my purposes. Now this suggests to me that Pharaoh was free to make that choice and that he could have been instrumental in bringing glory to God by cooperating with his plans and I believe he would no doubt have shared in that blessing that it would have brought But some may argue, doesn't it say God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, yes, it does, several times, but not at first. Which is why I asked you to prepare for today by reading the whole account in chapters 3 through to 11. Let's consider what the scripture does in fact say in this account. See, in chapter 3, after God called Moses to return to Egypt and lead Israel out, God told Moses that I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Notice that it does not say at this point that he hardened Pharaoh. What it does say is that God knows the state of Pharaoh's heart at the time, and since he knows the future, the end from the beginning, he knows that Pharaoh will not change. And then a little later on in chapter 4, just before Moses arrived back in Egypt, God warned him, and you can see this in in chapter 4, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I've put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, notice God, it says, God said, I will, I will harden his heart. That means at the time he hadn't done so. But he would at some point in the future. And when Moses and Aaron made their first visit to Pharaoh after returning to Egypt, that we read about in chapter 5, it makes clear the state of Pharaoh's heart. See, in response to their request to let the people go, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now we can see the state of Pharaoh's heart. Now on account of Moses and Aaron's intervention, the situation for Israel did not improve. In fact, on account of Pharaoh being hardened towards, towards them already, things got decidedly worse. And this prompted further visits to Pharaoh and so began a series of plagues that God sent upon Pharaoh in order to get him to cooperate and let Israel go. These plagues are described from the latter part of chapter 7 onwards. The plagues began with the rivers of blood, then came the plague of frogs, the plague of lice, flies, and that was followed by a plague on the cattle and livestock. In all that time, there is not a single reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart being attributed to God. Every reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart either states that Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh hardened his heart, or that Pharaoh's heart became hard. And if you read carefully, the first reference to God actually hardening his heart only comes after the sixth plague the plague of boils, which you see in 9 verse 12. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that hardening complete and permanent, or was it partial and temporary? If we read on through chapter 9, we find the answer. See, following the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell him why he had been raised up and to rebuke him for not cooperating with his purposes. We've read that in in, uh, verses 16 and 17. 
And then God sent the seventh plague, the plague of hail. And since God had hardened him after the previous plague, was Pharaoh free to repent and change his mind? Well, verse 27 gives us the answer. I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. And he pleaded with Moses to intercede with God on his behalf to lift the plague. Moses did so and God lifted the plague. Then what did he do? And and when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more and he... He hardened his heart, he and his servants. In other words, it was a willful, deliberate, collective decision. So what was God's response? You see, from that point onwards, God did indeed harden Pharaoh's heart. There was no turning back. See, the clear teaching we get from the the whole of this account in Exodus is that God does harden hearts. He did harden Pharaoh's heart, but he only did so in response to Pharaoh's deliberate, persistent and willful hardening of his own heart. Now, let us remind ourselves why God raised up Pharaoh. Quoting Moses, Paul clearly stated that it was for the purpose of declaring God's name throughout the earth. Now God's name has indeed been declared in all the earth even though Pharaoh actively opposed God's purposes. But I'm going to suggest that God's name would still have been glorified, his name would still have been declared in all the earth if Pharaoh had cooperated. See God did not depend on Pharaoh's cooperation or opposition to achieve his purposes. Now I only suggest this because I can demonstrate this from the word of God. It's a testable hypothesis, as we say in science. Now, what would I need to do to demonstrate this? Well, I would need to show that in similar circumstances, that a mighty, unbelieving ruler would cooperate with God and release God's people from captivity, and that God's name would be declared throughout the earth as a consequence. And the reason I can do this It's because this actually happened. See, several hundreds of years after Moses led Israel out of captivity, they were led back into captivity once more by the Babylonians on account of their persistent, willful and deliberate disobedience to God. And God had decided that they would remain there for 70 years. Now, towards the end of that period, God raised up a leader of a new mighty empire, the empire of the Medes and the Persians, to overthrow Babylon. And that leader's name was Cyrus. Now, both biblical and secular records tell us that Cyrus issued a a decree not only allowing the Jews to return home, but also provided practical support and protection that enabled them to do so. Now, we can read about Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 to 13, another of our readings. Now, according to the ancient historian uh, Josephus, this very passage of scripture, written 150 years before all these events took place, was read to Cyrus and was influential on him issuing the decree. So let's just read it. And I'll make a few comments as we go, but I just want us to read it to see, just to show what I'm saying, uh, just just to make the case for what I'm saying. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue the nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron, and I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by by your name, am the God of Israel. So the purpose is clear. God's name is going to be declared. 
See, in verses 1 to 3, notice God calls Cyrus his anointed and clearly reveals uh, Cyrus' rise to power and victory over Babylon has happened because God has done it. God has gone before him. God has made this happen. God has raised him up. The expression in uh, verse 1, to open before him the double doors so the gates will not be shut, is a remarkably accurate description of how Babylon was defeated. But we can't look into that now. Let's read on, verses 4 to 6. For Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. He was, uh, he was a ruler who did not know the Lord. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, and though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So in verses 4 to 6 reveals God's purposes. It is for the sake of Israel. It is so that the people may know that the God of Israel is the only God there is. And he states that God has named Cyrus, meaning Cyrus is under God's authority, even though he does not know God. Let's just read verses 7 to 12. I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands you command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts I have commanded. See, the purpose of raising, uh, raising up Cyrus is that the people will know that God is the creator of the universe, that he made man, and that he upholds and directs all things that happen. And just finally, verse 13. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. See, through the active cooperation of this pagan ruler, God's purposes will be fulfilled and have been fulfilled and his name has been declared throughout the earth. So when God said that he raised up Pharaoh, that his name may be declared in all the earth, I believe that it was possible that Pharaoh could have done this by fully cooperating with God's plan. The fact that on account of his foreknowledge, God knew that he would not cooperate and that Cyrus would, does not change that. Foreknowledge does not mean predetermined. God will fulfil his his purposes regardless of the cooperation of men. He has revealed in scripture that he wants us to cooperate with his plans and purposes so that we will know the joy and blessing of doing so. And he he also does not want us to suffer the inevitable consequences of not doing so. But the scripture is clear. We are responsible for our cooperation. Now I believe that Paul had Cyrus in mind when he wrote Romans 9. So if we turn back to Romans 9. See, in response to the anticipated objection to the statement, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy... Paul challenges this attitude behind the objection by stating, and let's read this in verses 20 and 21, 
But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honour and another for dishonour? Well, what does that remind you of? Didn't we just read that in Isaiah 45, verse 9? Now, it doesn't prove it, but it strongly suggests that Paul had Cyrus in mind when he actually wrote what he wrote. Let's just read on. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Well, what's Paul saying here? Well, given that he's got a pot, uh, the picture of a potter working with clay in mind, I think he may well also be thinking of another passage, which again, I just want us to read. I'll just make one or two comments. I'll let the, the scripture speak for itself because it's very self-explanatory. Turn with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 18, verse, and we'll read verses 1 to 10. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, notice he's talking to a nation. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. The passage is self-explanatory and confirms uh, what we've been saying concerning God's sovereignty. He will achieve his plans and purposes with or without our cooperation. Notice Jeremiah is talking about nations. He states that if a nation that I have not chosen turns from its evil ways and cooperates, then God will change his plans for that nation to bless them. And if a nation that I chose for the purpose of blessing does evil, then God will change his plans for them accordingly. The message is clear. If a nation actively cooperates with the plans and purposes of God, he will make them into a beautiful blessing of his salvation. If not, he will make them into a crude pot of his judgment. So far I've said much about who God hardens, but we haven't finished much more needs to be said on this, in particular how it relates to the spiritual condition of Israel at the time that Paul wrote, and on into the present. Now next time, God willing, we will need to look more closely at this. But before bringing today to a conclusion, I just want to consider the other aspect of Paul's case that we've so far ignored. That is, who God has mercy upon. See, in verse 9... Uh, in chapter 9, verse 15, again quoting the, the book of Exodus, Paul says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now Paul, as stated earlier, anticipated an objection to this statement. Part of our fallen nature wants to object to this. We want to say that if that is true, then I cannot be held accountable by God for the way that I am. But to do so simply betrays a lack of understanding of the meaning of mercy. See, mercy by its very nature is unmerited. If it was deserved, it would cease to be mercy. 
So to argue against who God decides to show mercy to completely misses the point. However, it does betray the attitude uh, in that, that person's heart, which is why Paul gives the rebuke, who are you to reply against God? Since mercy is completely undeserved, no one has the right to question who God has mercy upon. However, the fact that God has decided to have mercy upon whomever he wills does not mean that before the world began, God arbitrarily chose to show mercy to George and not to Fred, with all due apologies to anyone named George or Fred. It does not mean that we cannot know who God has chosen to deal with in mercy, because God has made it abundantly clear throughout the whole of Scripture. It simply means that we cannot argue against the fact that God has the right to choose who he has mercy upon, nor indeed can we argue against who he has chosen and who he has not chosen. So God has chosen to show mer- so who has God chosen to show mercy to? Now I don't need to tell you, you know this already. In fact, all that I've been saying this morning can be summed up in one one sentence of one proverb. Who does God oppose? The proud. Who does God give grace to? The humble. Who does Isaiah say dwells with the Lord in a high and holy place? Isaiah 57, 15. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Well, what about Genesis? Why was God pleased with the sacrifice of Abel and not Cain? See, in bringing the sacrifice of an innocent lamb to provide a covering for his sins, Abel was being humble. He was demonstrating his faith in what God promised to do for him. In fact, not just for him, but for the whole of mankind. It was the same faith that Abraham had and the basis on which God accounted him righteous. Cain's offering was an expression on what he thought he could do for God. It was an expression of pride and betrayed a belief that he could earn God's approval through his own actions. It therefore represented a religion of works. Well, what about the New Testament then? Now, remember God's promise to Abraham. In you, all nations will be blessed. Well, who from the nations would be the recipients of that blessing? Well, Jesus gave us the answer in the Sermon on the Mount. See, he began that sermon with a series of statements, all beginning with the word blessed or blessed. And each statement reveals who will receive God's blessing and in what form that blessing will come. Now, we're not going to go through them all. The very first statement reveals who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's the poor in spirit. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to realise that you are so up to your eyes in debt with regards to sin that you will cry out for his mercy. Just to give another example, who will not only be credited with his righteous, but be filled with it? Well, those who hunger and thirst for it. Those who know that they don't have it and are desperate for it. The humble will be blessed, not the self-righteous. This is what Jesus taught. There were two men who went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee who thanked God that he was so much more religious and righteous than other men, The other Republican, a tax collector who cried out, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Which one went home justified? Which one received God's mercy? It was the one who humbled himself and asked for it. And this is the concluding message of Paul's argument in chapters 9 to 11. In verse 32 we read, For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. Now, God's mercy has been made honestly and freely available to all, but not all will receive it. For God has made abundantly clear that he only gives his mercy to those who will humble themselves and ask for it. As Jesus taught, for the one who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbled himself will be exalted. Now, although we've covered a lot of ground today, and carefully considered some deep issues, there is still so much more to be done. And we began today by considering how and for what purpose Israel was chosen in the past. So next time, God willing, 
we need to concentrate our efforts on considering how the issues we have studied today apply to Israel in the, ple- in the present and what Paul has said concerning their future. Today we also address the question of who God, has har- uh, who God hardens and came to the conclusion that it's not an arbitrary decision made before the world came into existence, but a, but a question that the scriptures give a clear answer to. God hardens those who persistently, deliberately and willfully refuse to cooperate with his plans and purposes despite being given ample opportunities to do so. When you read through these chapters once more, pay careful attention to what Paul says about the fact that God has hardened Israel in chapter 11. And ask yourself these questions. Is their hardening due to a random decision made before the beginning of time? Or does Paul attribute it to their unwillingness to believe, accept and cooperate with God's plan of salvation, even though they've been given every opportunity to do so? And consider as well what Paul says about the consequences of that hardening. Is it total or is it partial? Is it temporary or is it permanent? And what does Paul say about the practical outworking of that hardening in the present and how, as a consequence, we should relate to the Jews today? We've also considered something of the sovereignty of God. And you see, in these chapters, Paul has not only answered the charge, has the word of God failed? He has clearly demonstrated that not only has it not failed, but also that it cannot fail. He has clearly shown that God will achieve his plans and purposes with or without our cooperation. He achieved his purpose that his name would be declared throughout the earth through Cyrus who did cooperate and through Pharaoh who did not. He has achieved his purpose of blessing the nations through believing Israel who cooperated with him and through unbelieving Israel who did not. God in his mercy invites us all to cooperate with him in working out his plans. And he does so because he wants us all to come to him for salvation and to know the consequential blessing as he works in us and through us to accomplish his plans. However, he has given us the freedom to decide whether or not to take up his yoke and to work in active cooperation with him by walking in the Spirit. Finally, we considered God's mercy, and we need to look at how God's, plan, God's mercy applies to Israel in the present and for their future. We noted the declaration, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, is referring to the fact that mercy by its very nature is undeserved and that no one has the right to tell God who he can and cannot have mercy upon. It's not a mystery who God has chosen to have mercy upon since it's been made plain throughout scripture. God has mercy upon all who will humble themselves and ask for it. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. May God bless you all.